I don't know whether to polka or to square dance. Even manly men can throw their heads back and sing praises to God. Amen? Amen. Merry Christmas, West Bowles. Are you in the spirit of the season? I see many of you in Christmas red or green or winter white, as I met someone in the lobby. Right? You ready for the season? Yeah. Is Olivia Burns here? She's around somewhere, I'm sure. I love what you said, Olivia. Mary was indeed young for her age when she had Jesus. I've got a little bit of Christmas trivia for you, too. Um, I don't know if I'll tell you the answer or not. Who is the young lady that was riding in the sleigh in the song Jingle Bells? Not Grandma. She got run over by a reindeer, right? Do you know it? Yeah, you guys go, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells. Now, it's in the dashing through the snow part, second verse. A day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride, and soon, Fanny Bright. You can win lots of money with that Christmas trivia. Give it all back to God, should you do it. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Oh, my word, am I sure I don't mean Acts chapter 4? I don't. You heard correctly, Matthew chapter 4. Now... Those of you who have been on the edge of your seats through our Acts series don't start suffering from what the doctors call AW. In layman's terms, it's Acts withdrawal. Be on the lookout for it. Headache, dizzy, drying of the mouth. If, you, if that starts coming on, go ahead and take Acts yourself and just read it on the side once in a while. We'll get back to Acts in January, I promise. But for Advent this time of year, I thought we would focus on a very special gift that God has given to all of us. It's the gift of not one or even two, but four Gospels telling the story of Jesus. My plan is, our plan is to take a rather sweeping look at each Gospel. We're going to cover one each Sunday of Advent. Please pray for me. As a way for us to anticipate and prepare for our celebration of Jesus' birth this Christmas. Now, have you ever wondered why God gave us four Gospels? Does that ever seem odd to you? Why do we need four? I mean, three of the four Gospels are so very similar to each other. These three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're even called the Synoptic Gospels because they're nearly synonymous. They're very similar to each other. One scholar points this out. He bothered to count. I'm glad he did. It saved me from doing it. There are 661 verses in Mark. Of those 661 verses in Mark, 90% also occur in Matthew. Do you know that there was that big an overlap? And about half of those 661 verses in Mark are in Luke. By comparison... The overlap between the Gospel of John and the other three Gospels combined is less than 10%. 90% new material in John. John, at least, I guess, gives us lots of new stories about Jesus. But Matthew and Mark, well, they may continue, at least at first glance, to seem redundant. 90% overlap. Why do we have these four Gospels, do you suppose? 
Here's one strong possibility I'd like to explore with you this morning and throughout the four Sundays of Advent. Let me try and illustrate. How many of you recognize this man? Okay, all together, someone shout, who is it? Winston Churchill, good. For those of you listening online, there's a picture of Winston Churchill on the scene, that on the screen, that great British Prime Minister who led Britain to victory in World War II. How about this next man? Who is he? It's Churchill again. See, I try to make it simple for you. How about this one? The guy on the right. <laughs> Churchill, you look a little different. Yeah, Winston. How about this one? Or maybe this one? See my... <laughs> Any Bible students I have from Front Range this morning, they suddenly started praying that my final in Bible will be this easy this year. One more. Now take a wild guess who that might be. Yeah, it's Winston Churchill. Why do you suppose that photographers, over the time that Churchill was here with us on earth, why do you suppose they took so many different pictures of Winston? What value is there in having different pictures of one man? Maybe it's because each picture shows us something different about him. Look at that first one again. What does it say, communicate about Churchill? I don't know, Churchill, the, the elder statesman, the, the dapper British gentleman. There's a kindness, there's an intelligence, maybe a father or a grandfather figure about that picture, don't you think? How about this next one? <laughs> I call this one, hey Hitler, you want a piece of me? Then this one, show, determined, no nonsense, tough as nails, Churchill. How about this one? Okay, that woman to his left is his wife, so maybe... The photographer is saying, oh, here's Winston cast in a setting as husband. Okay? And how about these last few? You've got Churchill as a military figure dressed in his uniform. And then there's Churchill giving his famous V is for victory salute. Maybe that shows him as an encourager or someone who never gives up. And that last one, uh, one of the favorites that I saw, Almost pictures Churchill as humbly bowed in old age, perhaps, before Big Ben, the, the symbol of Britain. So maybe that shows Churchill as protector or servant of England. The point is this. Each picture, each portrait communicates or emphasizes something a bit different about the man, doesn't it? In many of the pictures, we might see and appreciate even the intent and talent of the photographer taking the picture. The photographer sees something in their trained eyes, something in Churchill that, that he or she wants to emphasize. The photographer maybe even have their own sort of point of view that they're trying to communicate about the man. Now, so too with the four Gospels. Maybe one reason we have four Gospels is because God wants us to have four points of view into the story of Jesus. Four points of view from four different men, three Jews and a Gentile, 
four different emphases into Jesus' life, what he's like, what he's about, who he is. And if that's true, if the gospel writers are trying to emphasize something in particular about Jesus by the way they tell their story, then there would be great value, wouldn't there, for us to read and consider each gospel account separately, letting them stand on their own, telling their own story independent of the other gospel accounts? Now, to be sure, and please hear me, there is also great value in reading the gospels together and trying to view them all at the same time. But if that's the only way we read or approach or experience the Gospels, might we lose something? Might we fail to appreciate fully the gift that God gave us for Gospels, for pictures, for angles into the person and life of His Son? Imagine if we tried to look at the pictures of Winston Churchill all at the same time. We might get something like this. Yeah, some of you who are into creative memories think that would make a great creative memories page. And and there is. There's something winsome about that, isn't there? It's imaginative. You can see different, you know, facets of Churchill at the same time. How about this next one? Now you might say, even if you're creative memory minded or inclined, you went a little too far with the cropping software. See... If we only look at Churchill's pictures on top of each other, we can overdo it, can't we? Or if we only do it exclusively, that even might still communicate something. The longer I stare at this, I start to get motion sickness, so I can't look at it. But you can carefully pick out each picture, can't you? So there's something intriguing about it, but if that's the only way that we look at them, do we miss something that we don't, you know, we don't see unless they're just separate? Don't we miss some of the detail? For our series then on the Gospels this Advent, we're going to take a look at the Gospels separately. We're going to try to find and more fully appreciate what each author might be trying to emphasize about Jesus in their own right, within the four corners of their own Gospel. And again, hear me, of course, at the end of the day, Jesus is all of these things in one amazing person. Amen? But before we we rush to knit together those four different Gospels that God's given us, let's let's at least pause long enough to also appreciate what makes them distinct from each other and what we might be able to learn from those distinctions. Okay, let's first turn to Matthew. And we'll ask, what might Matthew, his Gospel, be especially trying to emphasize about Jesus. What does Matthew's portrait look like? What jumps out from Matthew that might not be as obvious, at least, or as central in the other three Gospels? According to Matthew specifically, who is this Jesus that was born? In short, one thing that Matthew, at least, seems to be clearly emphasizing in his gospel more than the others, is that Jesus is the righteous teacher. Now, to be sure, Matthew reveals many more things about Jesus, but he seems to especially emphasize that the coming one is Jesus the righteous teacher. You say, where do you get that? Well, first, 
even the structure of Matthew's gospel emphasizes Jesus as teacher. What do I mean? As you can see on the screen, Matthew chooses to organize his entire gospel to revolve the entire gospel around five large blocks of Jesus' teachings or sermons. Even though some 90%-ish of those are found in Mark, Mark spreads them all out, Luke spreads them all out, Matthew then, as one point of distinction from those other Gospels, for some reason, which I'll suggest in a minute, he chooses to take them all together and put them in five blocks. The first one, almost all of us, I'm sure, have heard of, are familiar with, if you've been um, a student or follower of the Bible and Jesus for any amount of time. In Matthew 5-7, through we've all heard of the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's easily the most famous. And then he condenses the other four in the chapters you see on the screen. So even the way Matthew emphasizes his thoughts, the way he tells his story, the outline and structure of the gospel itself, seems to be saying, you know, like a neon sign, teacher, teacher. Second, Matthew is widely recognized as the most Jewish of the gospels. Now one reason why... Is because Matthew, Matthew really works especially hard to make connections between the story of Jesus and the Hebrew Bible, what we also call the Old Testament. Now, as far as Jesus, the teacher, is concerned, the connection that Matthew makes there with the Old Testament runs especially between Jesus and Moses. Now, why would that be? What would the connection between Jesus and Moses have to do with an emphasis that Jesus is teacher. Well, Matthew's primary original audience, at least, was largely Jewish, scholars tell us. And if you start making a connection with someone, Jesus, keep making comparisons and connections to Moses, someone with a Jewish set is automatically going to identify they know Moses as the teacher or guide of Israel. To a Jew, Moshe or Moses and the word teacher are synonymous. So again, Matthew, out of his desire to present, to show the picture of Jesus as righteous teacher, connects Jesus and Moses together in some ways that I'll show. One author, Craig Blomberg of our very own Denver Seminary just down the road, he makes these observations about the connections between Moses and Jesus that you find highlighted in Matthew. Like Moses, Blomberg writes, Jesus, too, has miracles surrounding his infancy. Like Moses, Jesus causes turmoil among the rulers of the land. Like Moses, Jesus survives when babies his age are massacred. Like Moses, Jesus retraces the journey of Exodus out of Egypt. Matthew 1 and 2. Like Moses, Jesus remains in the wilderness for a 40-time period block. Forty days and forty nights, Jesus goes, the onset of his ministry to prepare for his ministry. Moses prepared in the desert 40 years, the length of time that was when Moses um, left Egypt because he was afraid that they'd kill him. Forty years passes before he comes back. And then, like Moses, or both Jesus and Moses, they give their teaching from a mountain, Matthew 4 and 5. 
Indeed, mountains remain significant places of revelation throughout the Gospel of Matthew in particular. Two other examples are in Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17. That's on a mountain. In Matthew 28, Matthew closes his Gospel on a mountain with the Great Commission, the Mount of Olives. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Those parallels between Moses, the teacher of Israel, and Jesus that Matthew highlights. Some scholars will even add this one to the list. They suggested that the reason Moses organize, Moses, Matthew organizes Jesus' main sermons into five blocks, not four, not six, but he puts them into five, saying, ah, I wonder if this is part of Matthew's emphasis that Jesus is teacher. Why would five have that effect? Well, maybe Jesus, or maybe Matthew is intentionally um, making a parallel between the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Jesus' five sermons, making that connection of a new teaching, a teaching that has fulfilled those first five books. Now, here are the, net, here are the, the, the age of Jesus died and raised from the dead guide for living. So Matthew puts them into five. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is the new teacher, is what Matthew seems to be teaching. He's the new Moses. Just like Moses, Jesus came to teach us, to give us God's guide for living. And just like Moses, Jesus now is our teacher, teaching us on behalf of God. Consider this, and this is appropriate for Christmas. Matthew's the only gospel that gives us the story of the Magi. Did you know that? Wise men, we say. It's the only one that has... Them following a star. You can look all you want, but did you know you will not find in Matthew shepherds or angels singing or even a whisper about a manger? And while, you're t- and while we're talking about it, did you know that in Luke there are no wise men and there is no mention of the star? Does that surprise you? That surprises most people. Some of you, I can see, immediately your heads went down. You don't believe me. You're thinking, oh, wait, wait, man, there's a star in Matthew. We're so used to immediately, automatically harmonizing the gospel and putting them on top of each other, all four of them. We're so used to doing that. And a concern, at least, is if that's all we do in our reading and experience of the gospels, we might take away... We might dull the point or the razor's edge of an intended emphasis that God and the authors through whom he is inspiring his word is trying desperately to make. We'll save Luke's emphasis on shepherds and manger for two weeks from now. But why might Matthew intentionally ignore the shepherds and instead write only about wise men? Here's the thought. Perhaps it's part of Matthew's emphasis that Jesus is the great teacher. The source or representative of wisdom or wise teaching. So much so that even the best and brightest and wisest guys in the world, and even the heavenly realms represented by the star, all of those worldly sources of wisdom, they come and bend the knee to the source, the only source, the greatest source, the one source of wise teaching or wisdom. Jesus is 
the teacher of all teachers. Jesus is teacher come to us in the flesh. Matthew seems to be screaming through his gospel. There's much more than than time will allow this morning to illustrate this point that, that Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the righteous teacher. But it certainly seems clear that that's what he's doing. Now, we also said that Jesus is not only teacher in Matthew, but he's the righteous teacher or blameless teacher or perfect teacher. Where do we get that righteous part from? You recall, many of you I'm sure, that Jesus summarized his own teaching. In fact, he summarized all of Scripture. He boiled it down to two commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything, Jesus said. All the law and the prophets. A short way of saying all of Scripture. Everything, Jesus said, that God teaches and gives us rests on the foundation of loving God and loving others. Now, many of you recognize that love command is something called the Shema. Shema is nothing more than a Hebrew word that means hear. Where do we get the name? In Deuteronomy 6, which Jesus quotes in the New Testament, God says, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Last year, many of you may recall, we studied Shema a bit and what's meant by loving God with heart, soul, and might. Some of you remember? If you're like me, you may need a refresher. I don't have time this morning to go in depth. But in short, in Hebrew, the heart is what people use to make decisions. Now, it certainly can include emotion, and it does, which we sometimes equate our heart with feelings and emotion. But biblically, at least at that time, heart also combined intellect. So emotion and intellect was something that was seated in the heart, and the heart is what was used to make decisions. No wonder God tells us to guard our hearts. Guard that decision maker, because we'll tend to follow our heart. Much easier for, or there's a bigger risk, isn't there, that our mind, even if we know better, is going to follow the pull of our heart? Right? I mean, if you feel some way... That's a strong push in us, and God knows that, and His Word did too. So He communicated that to us in His Word. So the heart is what people use to make decisions. So a big part, at least, of what it means to love God with your heart is to love God by the decisions that we make, to love God by where we allow Him to take us by where we allow our path to go. Love Him by the decisions that we make. What about loving God with all your soul? The Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. Definitions of nephesh include life force or, or will to live or even life itself. I often use the illustration of a swimmer. I apologize if I've used this illustration before. I probably did and I will again because it's the best thing I see out there. It's one of the best illustrations I've found to illustrate what soul is biblically. How many of you, when you were kids, or maybe even when you're whatever age you are, sometimes play a game and you go down to the deepest part of the pool and you're going to hold your breath as long as you can? Right? Like way past what you should. And you're 12 or 15 feet deep. Right? Kids do that, yes? Or did I just do that when I was a kid? I don't know. You go down there and you're like, you know, if there's even handles on the bottom, you're going to hang out, you're going to lie as you can. And then finally, when you just can't stand it, 
You've got to get up for that air. You guys ever have that sensation? So you push from the bottom. And then there's almost the intensity and desire to reach the surface almost approaches panic. And you start to think, oh, no, I stayed down there too long. You're just... And you're thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Because I'm any minute I'm going to go, and I'm drinking in water, I'm done. What a stupid game. And then you, you know, you break the surface. Blah! Oh, oh, oh. And your friends come, and you're all going, oh, oh, oh. Let's do it again. That, that, that desire, that urgency, that intent, that's your soul. It's more than just a distinction between our spirit side and our physical side. It's what, it's that drive in us to live. Nephesh. That's our soul. No wonder the Bible so often talks about soul in terms of our salvation and eternal life. When God saves our soul, God is giving us life. He's satisfying once and for all that most intense desire of ours to live. And God gives us that gift of life forever when He saves our soul. So to love God with all our heart means to love God by the decisions that we make. To love God with our soul means to love Him with that same intense and will and desire to live. Finally, our might in Hebrew includes physical strength. But it's so much more than that. Meodeha, might in Hebrew. It includes any power any talent, any gift, any influence that we've been given. And so examples of our might certainly includes our money. Money helps to influence and to get things done. The might of a king includes his army. Any respect or deference others give to you and to me to make decisions, that's part of our might. Parents, part of the might God has given you is the authority you have over your children. That's part of your might. So loving God with all your might includes in a big way that you do all you can to raise your kids to love and obey God. That's loving God with all your might. And any skill that we have, whether communicator, healer, plumber, hot balloon operator, whatever that we have, it's all part of our might because those things in some way, in some context, they have influence over others in some way. You get the idea. So to love God with all our might means that we give to God for His purposes all of those things of influence that we possess. Things that, after all, God gave to us in the first place. Okay, one more piece before we actually look at Matthew 4. I know you all thought I forgot about Matthew 4. I didn't. I'm getting there. But first, one more piece. The key to Shema. The key to what Jesus called the greatest commandment, the most important commandment, and what He even called what we, what we must do to inherit eternal life, the key to Shema of loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might is that word all. Did you catch it? It jumps out to us in English even, and it really pops in the Hebrew. The redundant use of all, 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 three times. God could have said, Love me with your heart, soul, and might. God even could have said, love me with all your heart, soul, and might. 
But the Bible instead and Jesus both hammer home the alls. It's all our heart that God is after. No divided motives when we make decisions. It's all our soul that God wants. No other passions for living over and above your passion for God. And all our might, everything we have, and all that we are available and used for God. Not just some of the things, some of the time when it's convenient or when they're left over. All and all and all of each and every part of us, our decision making, our will to live, and our influence. All our heart, soul, and might. And P.S. Why does God want every bit of us all the time? Is He just a big selfish what Peter said. He's just a big selfish. Why is God so tremendously jealous of every corner, every molecule of who, we, of who we are? It's because He is madly and deeply and profoundly and intensely head over heels in love with us. He loves us so much, so completely, He wants every drop of us all the time. What's the song? Oh, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? He loves you. He loves us. And He wants it all because He loves us so much. And it breaks His great heart. It tears the Almighty One of the universe into pieces. It devastates Him when we refuse to give it all to Him. It's like a lover's broken heart, the Bible says so. He loves us that much. As you scan the heading of your Bibles to Matthew 4, many of you will recognize, I'm sure, the story of Jesus' temptation. Or better stated, in my opinion, the story of Jesus' testing or trial in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert to be tested by the devil, we read. Jesus makes the commitment, an oath to God that a Nazarite would take in Jesus' day, makes the commitment to fast during his time in the desert. And sure enough, as Jesus is getting to the end of his fast, after the 40 days and nights, we read, the devil shows up when, when Jesus, in his humanity at least, is at his weakest point. And it's just like the devil, isn't it? To pick those times of our greatest weakness to attack. Isn't that just like him? Jerk. That's what he does. And true to form, the devil picks that time to pounce like the devouring lion bent on our destruction that he is. And the devil pounces on Jesus and says... If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's just so easy. You just say that. Why wouldn't you do that? And Jesus, starving, answers, Man does not live by bread alone. Now that's kind of a curious response, isn't it? At first, it might seem a bit cryptic or evasive. But it's only cryptic or evasive until we realize that Jesus is quoting from guess where? He is quoting from that same section in Deuteronomy that contains Shema, the love command. Do you know that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy here in response? Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 reads, And the Lord humbled you and let you hunger, 
and fed you manna which you did not know, nor your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know, that he might teach you, that no one shall live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as soon as Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 in response to the devil's test in Matthew 4, he immediately takes the reader back to the time of testing for Israel during their 40 years in the wilderness, where despite everything God had done for them so far, the ten plagues, the Red Sea, and Sinai, they still refused to completely, remember the all requirements of Shema, they still refused to completely trust God. They keep holding back. Remember the alls in Shema here. Israel decides, and that's a heart issue, they decide to believe in God to a point. All right, we're going to believe in you enough to follow you onto this desert. But at the same time, it's like this divided heart. At the same time, they decide not to believe that God would satisfy their hunger. And so it's with this split attitude, this split decision in Israel's heart, this divided heart of Israel. Israel decided not to love God with all her decision-making, all her heart. But look at Jesus in Matthew 4 and a parallel that I think Matthew is intending to make. Jesus, on the other hand, shows an undivided heart, a whole or perfect heart for God. He decides to make no move to satisfy his own hunger. He decides wholeheartedly to wait patiently for the food that he trusts God will give him when his fast is over. So unlike the Israelite, Jesus loves God with all his heart. Matthew's making a point in Matthew 4. Jesus not only teaches Shema, he lives it. He isn't just a teacher, he is the righteous teacher who practices fully and perfectly and blamelessly what he teaches. And Matthew isn't finished. There are two parts remaining to the love command. The devil pounces again, this time urging Jesus, throw yourself off the temple since God would be sure to save your life. Aha, save his life? What part of Shema now does the devil want Jesus to disobey? Now Jesus' life is at issue. His will to live, his nephesh or his soul. And P.S., the devil hits Jesus with this one again a few years later in Gethsemane, remember? And look what Jesus does here in Matthew 4 in Gethsemane 2. Although in Matthew 4, he gives us again a quote from the same section in Deuteronomy. Go figure. This time, Deuteronomy 6.16, which reads, Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. Massah. Other than being fun to say, Massah. Go ahead, you can try it. Massah. Almost sounds like karate. Other than being fun to say, what or where in the world is Massah, and what does Massah have to do with anything here? Well, at Massah, those same Israelites, you remember the story, many of you, I'm sure, they forced Moses to perform a miracle. What's the devil asking Jesus to do? Force God to perform a miracle? At Massah, the, the whiny children of Israel forced Moses to perform a miracle to save their lives because they're dying of thirst. Moses, disgusted, smacks the rock and water gushes out and their lives are indeed saved. 
But what's the lesson of Massah? The Israelites' concern for their own life overwhelmed their trust in God. They didn't love God with all their soul. But look at Jesus in Matthew 4 and the parallel Matthew's trying to make, in my opinion. Jesus refuses to make the same type of demand on God. He does not quarrel with God about his life-threatening circumstance he's finding himself in and that the Holy Spirit led him to. And that caused him to take an oath of fasting. He doesn't quarrel with about that. He doesn't waver on that. He declines to test God. He will not demand proof of God's presence or love. He will not demand a miracle to save himself. And again, Gethsemane is echoed, isn't it? Not my will, Father, but yours. In other words, Jesus loves God with all his soul, all his desire to live, in stark contrast to the Israelites. Jesus not only teaches Shema, he lives it. He isn't just a teacher, he is the righteous teacher who practices fully and perfectly and blamelessly what he teaches. One more. For the third test, the devil promises to literally give Jesus the world if Jesus would only worship him. And in a word, what is the devil offering Jesus? It's our last leg of Shema, isn't it? The devil is offering Jesus might. And take a wild guess as to which book and which section of which book Jesus quotes in turning down the devil's offer. What a coincidence. It's Deuteronomy. It's not a coincidence. It's Deuteronomy again. The same section again as Shema. This time, Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take oaths in His name. Those of you who have read Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, Moses is deeply concerned, deeply concerned, that once the Israelites get into the promised land, their accumulation of land and wealth will cause them to forget God. You really see Moses as a teacher in Deuteronomy, because it's like he's saying, pay attention. I do that in my class all the time. And you, those of you who are teachers, or maybe with your own kids, you ever get the idea your kids aren't paying attention? And you really feel that from Moses, the teacher. Ah, pay attention. I am so concerned. You're going to get into that land and you're going to get wealthy. And it's going to cause you to forget about God. And as it turns out, is Moses' concern well-founded? It's exactly what happens. Soon after they inherit the land, they grow fat and happy and wealthy and proud and content. And they turn to gods they make with their own hands big versions of themselves, and they break the covenant. They allowed abundance to soften the all of the love command. And ah, I'm so convicted on behalf of our culture when I read the requirement to love God with all our might. He's given us so much. Has it blunted our ability both in and out of the church to give it all. Israel failed to love God with all their might, but Jesus is not distracted by wealth and power and even kingly might. Instead, Jesus gladly refers to God, defers to God any might, doesn't take it for himself by compromising his oath. And unlike Israel, Jesus loves God with all his might. 
And again, Jesus isn't just a teacher. He is the righteous teacher who practices fully and blamelessly and perfectly what he teaches. When we look at the Gospels separately rather than as a whole only, we're better able to appreciate their specific points of emphasis about Jesus. In Matthew, one point of emphasis seems to be that Jesus is the righteous teacher. And as the righteous teacher, Jesus not only teaches to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, He lives it. He not only taught it, He did it perfectly. And He's the only one who ever has. This Advent, the one who's coming, we will celebrate at Christmas in 23 days. The one, that one who's coming, Jesus, is the righteous teacher. He's the one, the only one, who not only taught love, but did it all the way, perfectly. And there's more. He not only taught it, He not only did it, but because He taught it and did it perfectly, He opened the way for God to give us an awesome unstoppable power in God's will to do it too. Because Jesus not only taught Shema, but lived it perfectly, we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us in a way that humanity has never known before or but for Jesus, all out love and obedience. Enables us in ways that we've never experienced before since Jesus to love God with all our hearts and all our souls, and all our might. I can't wait to celebrate the birth of that righteous teacher. Can you? And what will our response be this Christmas to Jesus the righteous teacher? How about this? How about this Christmas we celebrate the coming of the righteous teacher who not only taught but also lived Shema and opened the way and access to the Holy Spirit in a way never before experienced, how about we celebrate His birthday by recommitting ourselves to loving God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. Amen? Now, I haven't read it myself. I haven't read Jesus' you know, list of presents that He wants for His birthday. But you know what? deeply convicted that that's the perfect Christmas gift for Jesus. I'll bet that's the birthday gift He most desperately wants from us for His birthday. Will we recommit, or will we commit, if you haven't yet committed, to go all the way, not just teach love, but do it with all of every part of us? Will we do that? Will you give it all to Him? Will you teach it and live it all the way? Because I'll be honest with you. I can't do it on my own. I need you. And in my opinion, no one in here can do it on their own. Or at least it's infinitely more difficult to step out in a culture in a countercultural current that overwhelms us to be individuals and think of ourselves and to save our heart, soul, and might for me. Every time I try to step out there and do it alone, wham! 
knocks me back to the, okay, I guess I can buy, you know, I do this for me. Maybe that's one reason why God gives us church. Because if there's a lot of people, if you stay with me for a couple minutes for this metaphor, we can form a wedge. And we can grab each other's arm by arm. And now let's wade out into that current. George almost fell in there last week, so I That's the power of community. That's what church needs to be. God gives us this gift. Look around. If I see Maddie, if I see Susie, if I see Mark, and they're together with me, going into that, boy, that give-it-all thing, boy, that's helpful to have a group in a community do it instead of this just Jesus and me out there on my own. Can we as a church recommit or commit ourselves to that in honor of Jesus, the righteous teacher who is birth we celebrate this Christmas? Let's pray. Father in heaven, if you have time, today, and I know you will since you're timeless, (laughs) would you find Matthew and would you tell him that we took a sweeping look at the gospel he labored so long over and would you thank him for the blessing and encouragement and the challenge that he gives us as he emphasizes your son Jesus as the righteous teacher and as we hear the call from the pen of Matthew to love God as our righteous, perfect teacher did and now enables us in a new way with the power of the Holy Spirit with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. Would you thank Matthew for us today, Father, for that gift and that conviction of the Holy Spirit that His words and His labor helped to bring about. And, oh, Father, we need you desperately to follow through It's hard, Father, as you know and as you knew and as you warn us over and over in the pages of your text. It's so hard to be obedient and do good without growing weary of it. You promise, you tell us, you warn us. And then you promise, Father, that if you just turn to me, if you do it with me, if you do it in community, anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit, I know, Father, you've promised that you will give us from you, from heaven, the faith, the strength, the heart, the soul, and the might to love you, Father, completely and to love others as ourselves. Would you please fill us with your power, with your heart, your soul, your might to do it all for you in the name of Jesus, the Messiah and Lord and Savior of us all. It's in His name, Jesus, the righteous teacher, that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Please, on your way out, buy Christmas tickets. I have to live with that little boy that thinks he's the star of the play. Step out in faith. Buy ten of them if you can afford it. Or even if you can't, and trust that God will find someone you can sell it to. Let's fill this place as we honor and celebrate Jesus, the righteous teacher. Have a great week. Praise God.
Please come up, as always, if you would like someone to pray with you. We're eager to meet you and to take you before the throne of God. Come on up if you'd like some prayer. God bless you.